These are the actual words that Jesus wants us to hear. Luke 4, 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his, in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you in need of your grace. Pray that you would open our ears to hear and open our hearts to understand those words that you have given to us. I pray that you would give Pastor boldness to proclaim the word as he ought and also to Pastor Ron as he preaches this morning in Wayne. I pray that you would give us ears to react with faith and belief in your words and not as the reaction of those in our passage today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, Clint. So if you have your Bibles uh, still open uh, to Luke chapter 4, as we uh, focus on the beginning here of the ministry of Jesus. You know, yesterday afternoon, my younger sister was uh, at my mom and dad's house, and, and they were going through old photographs. And my sister was uh, helping them to digitally scan uh, all these old photographs into their computer. And uh, with the aid of uh, smartphones, uh, she sent me a few of these pictures. Um, and then we would kind of text back and forth, you know, commenting on them and and talking about them, and I saw pictures of myself when I was three years old, when I was six years old, and pictures of when I was in, in high school, and, and each of them took me way back to a time that I can really even, you know, think about anymore. And as I looked at, at, at those pictures, what, what struck me the most was how I just couldn't believe that, that I was actually looking at myself, like that, that was me. That was me when I was younger. It was hard for me to imagine that I was ever that young, ever that small, 
ever that blonde, and, and that naive. John Calvin, the, the, the great reformer and Bible expositor of the 16th century, opened his most famous book that he wrote, which was known as the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He opened it with this very insightful statement, that is that true wisdom consists in two things, our knowledge of God and our knowledge of self. That is, we will not be able to live by wisdom unless we have a right understanding of who God is and then also have a right understanding of ourselves, uh, of who we are. And the two are related. Once we know how great and awesome and holy and glorious God is, then we will have a, a proper humility regarding ourselves and how low and needy and unholy and unrighteous we are. In our passage here from uh, Luke 4 that uh, Clint read for us, we, we see these truths being played out for us. We, we see that if we don't have a right understanding of ourselves, then we will not respond rightly to God's Son. It matters how we think about ourselves. For if, if we are thinking wrongly about ourselves, then we will think wrongly about Jesus Christ and end up rejecting the very one God sent to help us, and indeed, whom he sent to save us. But as this passage shows us, to have a right understanding of who we are and who Jesus is, we can only receive that through listening and receiving the words that Jesus says. So our main theme from this passage this morning is whether or not we receive or reject Jesus comes down to how we respond to his word, to, to what he says. Uh, first two verses here, uh, at the beginning of our uh, passage, 14 and 15, um, we're just kind of told a few things here, but I've labeled it outside his hometown, Jesus' word is welcomed and honored. So outside of, of Jesus' own hometown, his word is welcomed and is honored. Let me read those for you. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So Luke gives us just a brief summary here of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He begins, and Jesus returned referring to Jesus returning from the wilderness where he had gone to face, uh, to face the, the devil and, and he overcame each of the devil's temptations. And then we, we, we were told that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness in order to, to, to face these temptations. And this came immediately after Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River and had that incredible experience of being anointed with the Holy Spirit and God the Father speaking to him from heaven that he was his beloved son, and that he was well pleased with him. So this is what we are supposed to have on our minds as we observe Jesus begin his ministry, that he is God's son, that he is the Lord's anointed, he is Israel's Messiah, the promised Savior King, and, and, and he has won a victory over Satan Overcoming temptation in the wilderness as our representative. So Jesus is, is definitely supposed to have the focus of our attention moving forward in this book. 
And the second thing that Luke tells us is that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Jesus has been empowered for his ministry by God, the Holy Spirit. He was empowered to perform mighty works. But as we notice next in verse 15, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit primarily for teaching and for preaching. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. As we move forward in the the Gospel of Luke, we will be seeing Jesus do, do more than teach. We will see him heal and restore and cast out demons and even raise the dead. All things which the Holy Spirit will empower him to accomplish. But at the very beginning here, Luke wants to make clear to us that Jesus' primary ministry was that he taught in their synagogues. In fact, we'll see that at the end of chapter 4 as well in verse 43, when his disciples had, had, had wanted him to come back to a certain place where he had just healed many people, Jesus uh, responded to them by saying, I must preach the good news, that is the gospel of the kingdom of God, to the other towns as well, for that is why I was sent. I was sent for that very purpose. That is, I was not sent primarily to, to heal people and cast out demons. I was sent to preach and teach the good news, which will be even more effective at healing and setting people free. But what was the response to Jesus' teaching? Well, Luke lets us know that the people had definitely been talking. You know, these were you know, just, just small rural towns where he had been teaching, and you know how quickly word can get around in, in small towns, even without Facebook and Twitter. And then the consensus was here that, that, that he was some teacher. This was some teacher. You gotta hear, he, this, this teacher, they, they glorified him, it says, which means that they, they made much of him as they talked about him. They praised him. They told others, hey, you, you, you gotta hear this guy. He teaches with such authority. We've never heard anyone speak like this man. So as word got out about him, Jesus began to draw crowds to hear him teach. Now, it's important to notice, we're not told that the people believed what he taught. Luke doesn't say people believed him and then had begun to follow him, at least not yet. We are just told that outside of his hometown, as people heard him teach, his word was welcomed and honored, which will end up being a contrast to how the people who knew him best, those in his own hometown, will respond to him. And that moves us on to the next passage here, 16 through 22, where we see Jesus' word is good news to those who are outcasts. So Jesus has been teaching in the synagogues in the surrounding country outside of Nazareth, his hometown, but then he finally comes home and goes to his hometown synagogue. He would have been very familiar with this synagogue. During a a synagogue service, the the, uh, different men would have been asked to read a portion of Scripture and then comment on the passage that they read. And if there were men visiting the synagogue, as a courtesy to them, they would often be given the honor of doing this. You know, imagine, you know, on vacation, and you go to worship in a, a different church on Sunday morning, and they say, oh, we have a guest here. Well, would you please come up? Share a passage of Scripture and talk about it with us. 
That's, that, was, that was the general practice in the synagogues in that day. So Jesus, he's, he's, he's been away for a while. Okay, He's been away for a while. Now he returns. And so it's kind of natural then that he, he is given the honor of reading Scripture from the prophets. So here's, here's what we, we find him, him reading here. Verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and, and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up a scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Now the place in our Bibles that Jesus turned to in the scroll of Isaiah would have, would, uh, was chapter 61. Uh, verses 1 and 2. Uh, Jesus, of course, when he's looking at the scroll, he doesn't have divided up to chapter and verses in, in the scroll, but, but, but we do, thankfully. And, and, and he also inserted a verse from Isaiah 58, verse 6, in the middle of this uh, quote uh, of, of, of 1 and 2 from chapter 61. And, and, and that is the line in verse 18, recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That line is actually from chapter 58, verse 6, rather than chapter 61, but, but that line fits directly with the theme that is emphasized in these verses. That theme in these verses is liberty, release, being, being set free, releasing those who are captive, restoring that which was lost. That is the theme here of this passage. That's what Jesus is saying. The Spirit of the Lord had anointed him to proclaim that freedom. After the scriptures were read in the synagogue, the man who would read them would then roll up the scroll, the, 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 the scroll and present it back to the attendant, and the attendant would then put it away, and the man would sit down, and it was expected that the man would then say a few words regarding the scripture passage he read. So that's what, what we see happening here for Jesus. What Luke records is exactly how it would happen in every synagogue on the Sabbath. This is, this is not something that's unique. Everyone would expect the person who read the passage to share a few comments on the passage with those who, who were there. And I, I'm sure, as happens in the church, you know, if you go to, to, to church enough, you begin to hear kind of the same things from preachers and teachers about familiar scripture passages. Often, you know, when, when a certain passage is, is, is read in the church, you kind of already know what the preacher is going to say about it even before he begins his sermon. But that was certainly not the case with Jesus. He says something about the passage the people who were gathered there would have never heard before. He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, let's think about that for a few moments. Just what was Jesus saying about himself and about the prophecy that he had just read? What had been fulfilled? And what is Jesus saying about himself here? Well, as we look at it, we will see who Jesus is 
and the main purpose of his mission. But there's something very central to both answers, and, and that is the great importance of the word here. For Jesus is the fulfillment of the word of God. That is what God said to the prophet Isaiah. And the purpose for his mission is one of, notice that, proclaiming, preaching, teaching. Which again points us back to the central importance of Jesus' words. What he says about himself. And what he says about who we are. As Jesus said, this scripture, that is, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He is saying that they should understand the personal pronouns in the verses as referring to him. He is the me, as it were, in this passage. So he was saying the Spirit of the Lord had anointed him, Jesus. We, the readers, know back in the the previous chapter that, that Luke reported that at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit had descended on him and that Jesus was performing his ministry in the power of the Spirit. So we have interpreted that the Spirit coming upon him in his baptism as being when God publicly anointed him as the Messiah. But now here, Jesus interprets it himself, saying that he is indeed the one whom the Spirit of the Lord anointed. And and, and the verb here, anointed, that's, that's, that's used here, in the original Greek, is cryo, uh, which is what the noun Christos, or Christ, is derived from. So Jesus is, is saying clearly here, he is the Christ. He is Israel's promised Messiah. He is the, the Savior King, whom God had promised to David and to his people. That's who he is. He's he's announcing that in reading this passage. For all those who had believed God's promise and had been anticipating the Messiah, their wait was now over, for the Messiah had come and had revealed himself in his own hometown. But what will the Messiah do? What was his mission? Well, that's what Jesus tells us next in in sharing this passage from Isaiah 61. And and it might be a little surprising to us who have grown up in the church. It was also a bit surprising to those regular participants here in the synagogue of Nazareth. If you or any of the Jews who were present when Jesus read this scripture were to have been asked, hey, uh, what was the mission of the Messiah? Well, what, 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 what kind of answers would have been given to that question? Well, from them who were there, it may have been, the Messiah is going to defeat all of our enemies. He will raise up an army and drive the Romans out of Israel and establish his kingdom forever. For those of us who grew up in the church, our answer might be something like, well, the the Messiah's mission is to die for us so that our sins could be forgiven and we could enjoy eternal life. Now, of course, those answers aren't completely wrong. But it's interesting that they are not what Jesus said about his mission here. He could have gone to other verses in the, in the prophecy of Isaiah and brought about especially his, his dying for our sins, but, but he doesn't go there. Instead, he went to Isaiah 61. 
And what Jesus said is that his mission is primarily one of announcing a message of liberty, of freedom, of release from oppression. And it's very crucial to note just who it is that Jesus says this message is for. Look back again, verse 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The good news that Jesus is proclaiming is, as it says, for the poor, for the captives, the blind, those who are oppressed. Who are these people? Well, well, they are, they are some of the lowliest people in the entire society of Judea in the first century. They were not the influencers. They were, they were the overlooked, the ignored, the outcasts. But we need to think about this. Was Jesus interpreting this passage as referring to a certain social class of people? Or could he have been saying something more? Yesterday in our, our men's uh, Bible study, we were in the second half of Mark chapter 5, which shares the story of Jesus healing a woman who had suffered a long time with a, a bleeding condition, and also Jesus raising to life a daughter, the daughter of, of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. And one of the observations that we took uh, uh, from that uh, passage was that there was this contrast between the woman who would have been, been considered unclean because of her, of her condition, unclean for many, many years, she would have been considered an outcast, someone who didn't deserve to even be in the presence of Jesus, and that's why she kind of you know, snuck, on, uh, snuck up on him from the back to grab his robe in order to be healed. And then, contrasted with her, you, you, you had Jairus, who was a synagogue ruler, highly respected in his community, who obviously believed that he had every right to be received by Jesus, and so he just went right up to Jesus to ask him for help in healing his daughter. Both the respected member of the community and the outcast were healed. Both were ministered to by Jesus. He didn't refuse either of them. And that is also what we see Jesus doing throughout his ministry. Social classes mean nothing to him. He, he seeks out the poor and the wealthy. He reaches out and heals lepers, releasing them from their disease, and he also seeks out the wealthy tax collectors and goes to their houses to bring this good news of liberty and release to them as well. And we'll see that in the Gospel of Luke. So what this teaches us then is that primarily what he's referring to here, it's a spiritual poverty. It's a spiritual captivity. It's a spiritual blindness and spiritual oppression that the anointed one has come to proclaim liberty to. Those who know they are spiritually poor because they know they have no righteousness of their own before God. Those who are spiritually blind, who who do not know the way to God on their own. Those who have been taken captive by sin, who are released from sin's power over them and are set free to overcome temptation. And those who have been oppressed and taken captive by Satan and his demons, who Jesus will come and set free 
to follow him and to be used to serve the Lord. It, it is often those who are financially poor and socially oppressed and, and considered outcasts in their communities who much more easily recognize their spiritual need for a, a divine Savior. But Jesus is really talking here about a much greater captivity than being held in a, in a prison, a much, a much greater poverty than not having much money, a much greater blindness than not physically being able to see in front of you. As Luke says here in, in verse 22, these were gracious words that Jesus spoke. These were words which would give grace to those who had ears to hear. You see, for those who are aware of their sin, that is, aware that they stand guilty and condemned before the righteous and holy God, and who know that they, they, that they deserve hell, hearing words that tell them that there is hope for them to be delivered out of that terrible condition, that's incredibly good news. Words that offer grace, forgiveness, freedom. But the words are not ultimately gracious if all you do is hear them. They only prove to be gracious if the words elicit a positive response from the one who hears them. They will only be proved to be gracious to you if you know yourself to be one who is spiritually poor, without any righteousness of your own that you can rely on. They will only be gracious if you know yourself to be spiritually captive, enslaved to your sin. They will only be gracious if you recognize that you are like a blind man without any way that you can help yourself out of your condition. The words are gracious to you if you respond to the words with obedience and faith, coming to Jesus as the one who can deliver you, the one who can restore you, the one who can release you. But the problem is, so many in Judea in that day, as well as so many of us in our day, really don't believe that, that we are in any of these conditions. We really don't believe that, that we're spiritually poor, or that we're spiritually blind or that we, we are under any captivity at all. In, in, in other words, we are as naive as I was when I was six or 16 in those pictures I saw yesterday. They, they really don't know who they are, and, and, and therefore they don't believe they have any need for Jesus. And that is why we have the response that we have in these next verses, verses 23 through 30. In these verses, we'll see that inside his hometown, Jesus is rejected by those who took offense at his word. Verse 23, and he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. 
it is remarkable how quickly public opinion can change. But it does change fast when the things that we are placing our hope in have been shown to us to be empty. We take great offense when we are told that we are not really the people we thought we were. When our sense of security has proven to be false. And that is what what happened here to those in Nazareth. Those that heard Jesus' words about himself. Jesus shows that, that he knew what the crowd was thinking of him when he declared to them that he was the Messiah. And that his message of hope was for those who they considered to be outcasts. He knew they were thinking, look, isn't this Joseph's son? Or as Mark has put it in his gospel, isn't this the carpenter? In other words, they were thinking, what gives him the authority to say these things? He's just a carpenter's son. He's nothing. We know who he really is. He's not a rabbi who holds a degree from a prestigious school in Jerusalem. He's just the carpenter. In other words, they did not receive the grace that Jesus' words were giving, for they didn't believe they needed it. They thought they were better than him. They proved they didn't know themselves because they didn't accept his word. And so Jesus quotes two examples of the people that he was referring to from the Old Testament, from the time of Elijah and Elisha, which was a a period in Israel's history that was actually fairly dark. This is a dark time. When God's people, for the most part, had forsaken their God and had turned to worship idols. He shares that although there were many widows in Israel who were suffering through the famine, the man of God, Elijah, wasn't sent, that is, wasn't sent by God to any of them, but only to the widow of Zarephath. That is, she was a Gentile. She was a non-Israelite. She was an outcast. And that although there were many lepers in Israel at that time, Elisha, the man of God, did not heal any of them, but only Naaman, the Syrian, another Gentile, another one who would have been considered an outcast to Israel. So Jesus was warning them that now, look, in their midst, there was a man of God among them. The man of God was among them. The man whom the prophets were pointing towards, one who, like Elijah and Elisha, will work miracles and who will proclaim the word of God to them. But if they reject him, well, then the word of God will go elsewhere. It'll go to the Gentiles, to those who know they need deliverance, to those who believe they are poor and blind and oppressed. And they will respond in faith they will receive the grace that his message offers. So the men of Nazareth took offense at this, rose up in wrath, and tried to kill Jesus. But it wasn't yet time for Jesus to lay down his life. So he miraculously passed through them and escaped. But the point is clear. There are people, even his own people, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. John 1, his own people who will refuse to accept his words and they will seek to kill him for it. And so the shadow of the cross hangs over this passage as it did the last passage. But how is this passage supposed to hit us? Well, two ways, I think. First, 
Have you received the words of Jesus as gracious words? That is, do you know yourself to be one of the poor, the blind, the captive, the oppressed? Do you know yourself to be utterly empty of any good thing apart from God's grace through Jesus? If we are to receive grace from the Lord Jesus and be saved by him, we must first realize our condition, that we are completely without any righteousness of our own and must completely depend upon the righteousness of another if we are to be able to stand before God in the judgment and not be cast into hell. It is only those who who know they need a Savior who will come to Jesus as their Savior. So is that you? Do you know yourself? And the second way is, is considering who the people are that we generally offer the word of Christ to. Let's consider who the people are that we, we generally offer the word of Christ to. Does, does Jesus' mission here to bring good news to the poor, that is to the outcast, does that influence our understanding of our mission? It's easy for us to become complacent. You know, we, we're, we're all so drawn to what is comfortable for us. It's comfortable to just come to church and, and, and to, you know, to sit with the people that we know well and, 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 and are comfortable with and then enjoy a worship service with them, but then never go out there. Never go out there and seek to bring a message of hope to people who are oppressed, to people who are oppressed by demons. People who have been taken captive by their sin, who are blind to their condition and blind to who Jesus really is. Are we bringing Jesus' message of hope and liberty to them? Are we inviting people like that into our homes for meals so, so that they can get to know us and, and then that we can build relationships with them in order to share this message of good news with them? When we do, and I hope we will, let us remember how we are to always think of ourselves. We are, we, when we share the good news with others, remember that we were once blind, but now we can see because of the grace and mercy of God. The grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ giving us the ability to see our great need for salvation and to see that he is the Savior that we so desperately need. Let us Let's think of ourselves as poor beggars who are just pointing other poor beggars to the one who can provide them with, with bread, with the bread of life. Let us always think of ourselves as those who were held in captivity but who have been graciously set free by the one who left his father's throne to come and rescue us, to rescue sinners who can never have saved ourselves. And let us give him, the Lord Jesus Christ, all the glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we have uh, considered these words this morning, the words of our Lord, I pray that it would do the work that you have sent it to do in our hearts today. Continue, Father, to sanctify us according to your truth. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.